episode 196 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today we're talking to Craig Robertson, whose Watch Him Die was published on June 11th. Thank you so much for talking with us, Craig. No, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I can't help but notice the parallel between this interview. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and while you're not in Glasgow, you are in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And the structure of Watch Him Die, which is, for want of another description, a bi-continental procedural story of murder and mayhem. That's as good a, as good a description as I can think of. But it, but it's true. This this investigation uh, is bi-continental and Los Angeles and Glasgow. So I think you should talk a little bit about your connection to the two places. Okay, my connection came through my wife, Alexandra Sokolov, uh, an author and uh, who comes mainly uh, from Southern California, most of her time spent in and around LA. Uh, so uh, we have been together for seven years, we married two years ago, two and a half years ago, I beg, better get this right. Um, <laughs> so we spent a lot of time in LA over the last few years. And um, while I wouldn't say I really know LA in the way that you can't unless you go time and live somewhere, um, I reckon I knew it enough that I could get away with it. And, uh, and, and I wanted to. Um, and I wanted to structure something that would take in sort of both parts of my life. And uh, if I could get the plot right, which was going to be the tricky bit, then I wanted to try and do that. I think you did a good job with LA and you really captured a moment uh, when we were in the drought and uh, those little signs were appearing on mm. lawns that, you know, I'm not watering and, and this is intentional and, uh, you know, everybody let their lawn look like a little uh, patch of desert. Yeah, it, it was one of those things. I, I saw one of those signs, which was, uh, you know, along the lines of thank you for not watering your lawn. Uh, you know, the, the planet thanks you, you're awesome. And uh, and I thought, well, the house that it was in front of clearly hadn't touched the lawn for a while. But with the crime writer's mind, I thought, well, I wonder if he's not watered his lawn because he's dead. And that was kind of where we started from. Um, as the investigation unfolds in Los Angeles, where a, a natural death... Uh, a, a death of natural causes opens up a whole world of evil. The key to that links this, uh, the key that links this case to the UK is one word that causes a eureka moment for one of the LA detectives, which made me think of the quote attributed uh, to Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, and Winston Churchill about two cultures divided by a common language. That was a very neat little trick. I, the, the two worlds uh, divided by common language is my life. Uh, so when people say, uh, you know, my wife doesn't understand me, my wife doesn't understand me. You know, so we are learning new words from each other um, all the time. We're learning to swap vowels a little bit so we can understand each other. Um, the word, I think, if I remember rightly, in this was... Was, was arse. Arse, yes. Um, so... But it's a slightly changed thing because our language is always changing and we are um, stealing or a little more of the US words or having them voiced upon us. I'm not sure which. So more and more people in the UK say ass, which we never used to do and certainly not in Scotland. 
but uh, I, I stuck to, to arse rather than ass as, as for that, uh, that very reason, for that uh, link to give them a clue that there was something, something else going on here. The dead guy in L.A. had a collection from, uh, and this is a quote from your book, a who's who of American serial killers, mm. right down to Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge, which was a nice touch, by the way. Mm. And this is not the first time murderer Abelia has found its way into your fiction. And so should the reading public be worried about you? We're already worried about some of your characters, but <laughs> we would be worried about you. Um, I, I hope not. Yeah, I think with most authors, it's uh, get it down on the page and we don't have to act out in real life. It's, it's kind of the way it goes. I think I first wrote about murderabilia in a book of that title would be four years ago now, I'm thinking. Um, and I did so much research for it at the time to the extent that uh, I then got called upon as a, an expert on murderabilia for, for a couple of podcasts when people wanted to run things on them. I somehow became the, the go-to person to speak to, which was very odd. But um, I did research it thoroughly. I bought quite a few things and since acquired a few other things. Um, I find it fascinating. I wouldn't touch the stuff but for, for books, but uh, I find the whole psycho psychology behind it really interesting. And I also wanted to give my readers, uh, a little Easter egg, I guess, of, of something we touched on before. And it, it, it worked as a way into that story. You know, it's a, it's a really uh, chilling case that, you're, that, that this book is, is uh, talking about, this crime fiction. Uh, it's a, it's, the way I was thinking, it's a very twisted cyber voyeurism. Uh, and because it in, includes that cyber element... Uh, it, it strains the skills of techies on both sides of the pond. I found that uh, technically, as I was reading, very interesting. They're, they're both uh, uh, the, the tech squads in Los Angeles and in Glasgow and Police Scotland are converging on this uh, conundrum of finding a location. And it, it, it was both a look into how local police forces work and how it's all globalized now. Yeah, I, I wanted to use the fact that um, technology, the internet has shrunk the world. You know, it has made it a smaller place, both uh, for good and for ill. Um, and by the nature of the book, I wanted to co concentrate on the ill that can be uh, brought about through it. My own technical knowledge is not that great, but um, as with a lot of authors, I know someone who, who knows, so that's the way to go, is I, I mine their minds and uh, get enough, but also to try and keep it simple enough. I, I never want to try and baffle a reader with, with Goldegook. You know, that doesn't do anyone any favours. So I try to make it understandable, um, and, but make it accurate. That's, that's got to be done. Um, I went to the Tucson Festival of Books a couple of years ago, and I was listening. I went to a panel uh, with an American author on it, uh, Lori Rader Day, and somebody asked her a question about something along these lines. And you know, are you a, an expert in this particular field? And she said, "No, I did talk to a few people, and I read a book or two. She goes, "But then, you know, I made it up." Yeah. 
I tried to, there were points where um, my main tech guy, I was like, can I do this? And he said, no, you can't do that. I said, well, could I maybe, no. And I spoke, can we do this? So you could do that. And that, we just kind of went on. And there was maybe a couple of points where he said, well, if you don't go too, into too much detail how you achieve this part, then you'll be fine. Uh, if you go into detail and the detail's wrong, then, of course, someone's going to call you on it. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I was a journalist for a long time, and having knowledge of any subject, like yourself, you, you only need to know more than the person that's reading it, more than enough to get through a, a specific thing. And, uh, but I do, I do enjoy the research and, uh, and finding out new things in each book. I reckon if I could be interested in something new in a book, hopefully the reader will be as well. I think uh, uh, when you talk about being a journalist, the way I describe it to people is that you know a very little about a lot of things. Yeah, that your I'm knowledge great, yeah. is broad but shallow. I, I'm, I'm, I'm great in trivia quizzes, uh, but you know, actually ask me to fix a car or a, you know, build a radar. No, I can't do anything worthwhile, really. Writers. Yeah. Detective Inspector Rachel Nary, is that how you pronounce her name, Nary? That's her. And her team are characters you work with often. You know them, how they think, what they, were pro- what they probably will and won't do in a given situation. But you had to get to know the LAPD detectives, yeah. Brian Salgado and Callie O'Neill. And so how easy were they to work with, you know, being from L.A. and all? They, they, were, they, they were relatively easy, but you're right. I knew everything that, that Rachel Nader was going to do. I knew how she thinks in a given situation. I've, I've lived with her for 10 years, so I, I know her pretty well. The other two kind of grew up on the page. So I really, I decided not to make too much of a plan on them. Because uh, I, I think sometimes when you do that, it's easier to fall into cliches, and I really didn't want to, to go there. So the, the first scene of them together... Um, well, the first scene, they're alone. They're, they're driving in a car and there's a bit of conversation. And a lot of who they are grew through that car journey. Uh, so their interaction worked. That told me a bit more about each of them. I've still got lots more I need to know. So um, I'm not certain I'm going to be writing about them again, but I think there's a good chance. And there's more I want to know about, about their home lives and what made them with the, the people they are. But I... I wanted to like them. Um, sometimes Rachel can be a bit difficult, and that's okay. I'm, I'm quite happy with that. But I, I didn't want two lots of people who were difficult to like or to, to get on with. So I wanted to make them a bit more, uh, a bit more sociable, a bit more uh, upfront and likable. So that was that was one of my starting points for them. Um, but also, I as ever, writers do, you know, I sold bits from here and there from people that I know and, and made an amalgam that, that I liked. You mentioned that we meet these two Los Angeles detectives in a car uh, mm. driving, and I had this conversation with uh, Marsha Clark. I interviewed her recently, and we talked about that because she lives in L.A. and I live in L.A., and there's no traffic. I live right by the 405, and I wow. had to go to Orange County, and it took me 40 minutes. It usually takes me 40 minutes to get on the freeway. Yeah, to get into your car, yeah. That so must be incredible. It's, it's uh, like everything else about the, cur- the current situation, it is uh, surreal as an overused word. So I'm just going to say it's odd. 
It's just really yeah. odd. Yeah. And uh, because it's not really surreal, it's just there's no traffic, and that's odd. Um, but you make a very good point that a lot of conversations in Los Angeles between partners, uh, specifically police partners, I'm thinking of Bosch, I'm thinking of uh, books that Jeff Parker's written, uh, take place in the car because yeah. uh, Los Angeles is huge geographically. Huge. Yeah, and you spend a lot of time in the car. There's a lot of time to talk because it takes a long time to get anywhere. And, and also that's the point where there's not necessarily any action as such going on. And if you want to, you can either say, right, they drove from A to B, or if you want to be on that journey, you have to have them talking. And it, it's a chance for them to explore things. So it, it's a, uh, no pun was intended when I said it's a useful vehicle. But it, <laughs> it, it, it just is. It's a time for, one of the few times they can get partners together and they can talk things through and you get a better sense of who they are of what they want from this investigation that they're doing. And, yeah, apart from now, there's always time in the car in LA. And I, I think it's it it's interesting. Uh, I don't want to give away to – there's always a challenge in this, in this particular podcast in talking about – because I talk to the writers and I talk specifically about their books. Mm. This is part of a series, but to me it was almost like a standalone novel yeah. featuring your, your character, Rachel. Um, that this kind of cyber pen pal uh, <laughs> relationship between uh, people of like minds does take place. Sometimes it's uh, something as innocent as knitting. <laughs> and uh, I know I have a, 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 a Scottish woman with whom I communicate about my knitting. Um, you know, I love it. Uh, but this is a, this is a, this is a uniquely 21st century construct, I think. I, I, I think it is. Uh, I like the idea of them having a suspect that they could talk to, but not know who he was. I, I, I wanted to know how to interview him, how, how Rachel would go about talking to this unknown person she knows he's guilty of something and how she tries to get inside his mind. I went to um, the best person I know in the subject. It was uh, Catherine Ramsland, who has written, I think it's 60 books on uh, forensic psychology and on and, and interview techniques with, with killers. And I said to her, how would they go about doing this? And she, she was surprised by the, the construct because it's so unusual, I think. So she said, well, they would start by asking them based on things they've got from the scene. I said, well, they haven't been to the scene. They don't know the scene. Oh, okay. But they know he's a killer, yes. Uh, okay, in that case, you're going to have to do this. And she, she gave me this incredible insight and pointed me in the right direction to how they would go about telling, working out what he's saying that's true and what isn't. And that is ultimately the, the key to all interviews. And looking for tales, uh, I think she'd make a great poker player. And it was it was the basis of all those interviews. And I hope uh, sort of underpins them with with a bit of knowledge uh, and and makes them a bit more real. But the the sense that they can do this on different sides of of the world or on different sides of of a city without knowing, I think they 
the benefits of social media are, are great and the perils of social media are great and, and this sense of anonymity and hiding behind a cloak it's a terrifying thing, I and mean, we, we're really going to have to get to grips with it at some point. And so I, I wanted to have a look at that. And, you know, you do uh, touch briefly, and I think very, very well, you touch on uh, one of the most notorious Los Angeles cold cases, which is the Black Dahlia, which is, is a nice thread that you weave through uh, the interviewing process, because one of the things that uh, Rachel is doing is appealing to this uh, murderer's vanity. Yeah. She, she wants to get him to talk. Um, he has a, a great belief in himself uh, and in his own invincibility. Part of that, because he's behind that cloak of anonymity, uh, she wants to get him to talk. And, yeah, uh, making him think that he's... Uh, is extolling his own deeds is, is one way of getting him to do that. So he, she's using everything she can to, to get what little uh, there is to, to be gained because she is trying to track down uh, and trace a, a young man who they know is dying in front of them. I hope I'm not getting ahead of your questions. Um, and the person she's talking to does not know where he is but has more information that can lead them in that direction. So she's trying to glean what you can from this, this killer. And through the Elizabeth Short case, they're, be- they're able to cobble some clues together. I don't want to give it away. Yeah, but... yeah. So now I want to shift gears away from Watch Him Die, because mm-hmm. I think everyone listening should definitely buy it and read it. Um, and, and I'm going to go to a two-part question. And, uh, you know, it's a given that these are unusual times. And for writers, the times complicate book releases. It's also mm-hmm. brought about a screeching halt to book festivals all over the world. Yeah. And including some that you have an integral part in, you are one of the founders of Bloody Scotland. And is it pronounced Butte Noir? It is, yes, you're active in Theakston's and all, and these are all in UK and Scotland, all of which have been cancelled this year. Um, and, and of course, it's all about me because I was actually planning to go to Butte this year. Uh. <laughs> so uh, is this hopefully just a gap year or do you think the festival landscape has shifted uh, for a longer haul? And what sort of challenge... What sort of challenge do you think it is for writers introducing new books? You're an established writer, so you have a fan base, but what about debut authors? Uh, with, with festivals first, oh, let's hope it's a gap year. Um, yeah, this year I should have already been at, well, Dixon's uh, in Harrogate next month, Butte at the end of July, Bloody Scotland, Bouchercon uh, in Sacramento, uh, two months in uh, New Zealand, uh, we, were, we were supposed to be uh, on a, a fellowship in September and October, Iceland Noir in November. Iceland Noir might survive. It's later on and a bit further away, so it might be okay. But, yeah, very much missing the rest. A lot of work has gone in. Um, I run Butte Noir and had our best lineup of authors yet, and, of course, it can't take place. But uh, next year... Um, Next year, we might have to make the festival a bit bigger because everybody that came this year wants to come next year, plus those who haven't been for a couple of years are due to come back. 
um, I think as authors, we're missing each other as well. You know, we because it's a fairly, but not completely solitary existence, we love the chance to meet up, have a beer and chat about books and about everything else. So I think we're missing that. We're missing the chance to meet with readers. But everything is adapting. Uh, Bloody Scotland's it's going to have an online festival, the extent of which we're not quite sure yet. We're waiting on finance, basically, to drop into place before we know. So we will we will do something. And I think going ahead, there's a likelihood, I think, the festivals will take advantage of technology more than they have done. I think it's inevitable. I think it will be a guess, but I'm guessing two, three years before everyone is traveling as much as they did. Uh, some people might not be keen to do that for a long time. So I think we can we can use technology. As I talk about in the book, there, there are so many bad sides to it, but it means we can bring the world to us. We can go to them. Authors who might find it difficult to travel uh, don't need to, and and we we can embrace that and take advantage of it. It's a very strange time to be bringing books out. Uh, mine came out last Thursday. There are no bookshops open. That's a. Some of them are opening in England. Uh, I think opened two days ago. Uh, in Scotland, I think they can open in a couple of weeks' time. So we're just having to adapt. Uh, for those who are debuts, it is tricky. Um, at Bloody Scotland, one of the things we're aiming to do, if we're hoping to do in an online festival, is to give a bit of a platform to those people who really missed out on the chance to stand up and shout about their books uh, because of that period where they all kind of fell into a black hole. So we're hoping to give a platform to as many of those as we can. It's such a tricky time. Um, I'm hoping that publishers will, and I'm sure they will, take this into account when they look at figures. They can't really judge anyone on a book that came out in this period of figures sales are down. It's inevitable. You know, with, with outlets being down, I'm sure Amazon are rubbing their hands, but uh, and hopefully they're doing their jobs to get books out there. But it's, yeah. But in the scheme of things, you know, with people... With people dying, it's not the most important thing. So we we have to keep everything in perspective and hope that by this time next year, we'll all be back in even keel. But I think it might take that long, unfortunately. No, you you make a point that yes, in the in the general context, but of this is a terrible, terrible thing. But books are very important to those who are stuck at home. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, I think people, and it's, this is. I'm glad to say people are reading more than ever by the look of it. Um, I'm not sure that people are writing more than ever. I know that a lot of writers have, have had problems. Uh, I've actually, and I feel guilty saying it, but I've been writing more than ever because there, there are fewer distractions. Uh, I can't go to the pub. There's no sport on TV. And the kids can't come to visit. So writing time is, is expanded hugely. And I'm writing quicker. And I think better than before because I've got all more time to concentrate. Now, even the time I'm not writing, I've got more thinking time. Uh, but I know that that's not working for everyone and people are rightly consumed by what's going on and, and worried for everybody around them. So it, it doesn't work. Maybe I'm just a sociopath and that's why I'm... I, I, don't, I don't think so. It's about using the time and then that research is as important a part of the book as the writing is. You, you can't really do one without the other. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what order you do it in. Uh, 
I know authors who will research, they'll write the book and then do the research because they know just the bits they need to research. I tend to do mine as I go along, um, but I will often disappear down rabbit holes that I, I really shouldn't. You know how exactly how it is. You, you just get interested in something. Uh, I also have to ask you about your recent article in The Guardian, which I think was mm. very, very brave of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, to pick 10 books and writers that define Scottish crime fiction. Um, you know, Scotland has a deep field of crime fiction writers, and those writers have voluminous backlists. Um, so how did you do it, and how vociferous has the blowback been? Uh, I did it with, uh, with the pure knowledge that it, it wasn't uh, going to go smoothly. I did it knowing that there would be pushback on it. Uh, I made a list, and then I cut it down, and then I added to the original list, and then I... I it's a tricky thing to do. Um, I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to do... I decided I wanted to do 10 different authors rather than having maybe two books, which would have been so easy to do, um, more than one book from, from any one author. Uh, I tried to make a broad spread of it. I tried to include a couple of books maybe people didn't know as well. It would have been very easy just to go uh, to hit the top notes. And I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to try and share the love a little bit, but knowing that I was never going to be able to keep everyone happy. There's a book I, I could easily have included uh, by James Hogg, which is often considered sort of the beginning of Scottish crime fiction, but oh, and I'm going to show my ignorance now. I think it was written in the mid-1700s, late 1700s. Um, and I had that on my list for a long time. And I, uh, and I, it, it's called the, the Memoirs and Private Confessions of a Justified Sinner. I think I've missed the title of it. But that's, that was the first. Um, but I wanted to basically concentrate a bit more on uh, modern, modern crime fiction that is sometimes called tartan noir, although we're not all entirely enamored with the, the expression. The pushback was immediate because uh, as everything is these days, the Guardian put it online. Uh, I got I got a couple of messages from authors saying, "Why am I not on there?" But they were kind of joking. I think. I think. Uh, You'll have to wait till the next festival to find out. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Um, they, some of those who weren't on it uh said I owe them I owe them beer and some of those who were on it said they owed me beer. So that's the kind of transactions we're we're dealing in. But uh from readers, uh, yeah, a lot more pushback. Why is there no Peter May on there? Um it's a disgrace that there's no James Oswald on there. How could you leave out Denzel Merrick? That is an aberration. Um and I got lots of this. And the Guardian comments where obviously people can be anonymous and this goes back to what we're talking about earlier. Yeah most people were very polite, even if they didn't agree. Some not so polite, but I knew that was coming, and that's fine. Well, I still think kudos to you. Very, it was brave, and I have to admit, Peter May did cross my mind. Oh, it uh, crossed mine so many times, and I love the Lewis man in particular. Um, and as I was talking to Mark Billingham about a similar kind of list, and he said, "Well, ask me tomorrow, and it'll be a different take." And and that's always the case with these things. So I do regret not putting Peter May in and others, but they only gave me 10, and I, that's my, my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Well, you and I, I, we must have similar tastes because The Cutting Room is always in my list of top 10 
crime fiction. It's a fabulous novels. book, and I really hope more people uh, can read it. Uh, Louise Welsh, it's my, it's my top 10 of any genre. Whenever I'm asked, and it happens quite often, to list top 10s, it's always in there. And for a debut, it's astonishing. So, and this is my last question. What's next? What are you working on? Are you going back to the Faroe Islands? I've always wanted you to go back to the Faroe Islands. I think I would be in the Faroe Islands possibly right now, but for the pandemic. There was a plan. It hadn't been, I hadn't booked flights around, but there was a very vague plan to go to the Faroe Islands this summer uh, to take Alex with me. She's never been. Um, and I do have a trilogy planned out, completely mapped out for the Faroes. When I'm going to be able to write it, I'm not sure. Um, for, I need to go back. If I'm going to do it again, I need to go back and, and do more research. I'm writing a standalone at the moment. I'm about, well, I've written 62,000 words, exactly 62,000 words. I wanted to get to 62 before I, I stopped for the afternoon to do this. Um, so I'm within 20,000 of finishing. Uh, it's a first-person female protagonist, I'm loving it at the moment, and this worries me. Um, I'm sure you, you'll have had this feeling that we all get that whatever we're working on is the worst thing we've ever done, and that it's not going to work. I've had that with every book, and by some miracle it's worked out okay each time, so I'm now worrying that the reverse is true, and because I think this is good, it might be terrible. So uh, once I, uh, maybe in another four weeks or so, I should be done, I think. Uh, and then we'll see what other people think. <laughs> well, that will, that will be the test of. I have a feeling it will be Cracker Jack, uh, as all your writing is. Uh, you, your um, Last Refuge is also one of the books that always goes onto my top ten list. No, bless you. Well, uh, uh, Brody Tunheim, uh, who was the uh, Faroese uh, detective in that book, he will be making a comeback as soon as I get time to write it. And he's, he will be the lead in this trilogy. He's, he's a marvelous character. Craig, I'm so sorry. I'm not getting a chance to buttonhole you in Butte or in Sterling or ah, in Gate or even, even up the road from me in Sacramento. That will have to be a pleasure deferred. I look forward to it. Thanks again. Nancy, thank you.